Let me tell you the story of a hospital we work with. So this is a very safe hospital. This hospital only killed or maimed or injured one out of 13 of their patients, right, that came in for care, which is pretty good for a hospital. That's the voice of Sidney Decker, and he's a person you know pretty well by now. Today we're going to start things off a little differently. So here's Sydney with a story. 7% complications? Oh my God, that's an amazing number, right? 1 in 13, 7%? Hmm. Um, <laughs> so the patient safety officer of this hospital system was, in fact, was a doc and was one of my students. And he'd set in, in place a pretty good patient safety organization that had been gathering lots of data. So plenty of accidents were happening. So we asked them, well, what characterizes the one that goes wrong? So what happens in that one? Well, let us tell you, workarounds and people do shortcuts and they violate procedures and they make errors and miscalculations, right? The decimal point goes in the wrong place. And the list goes on. They can't find the tools that they're supposed to work with. You know, where is my infusion pump? I know I put it here this morning, damn it. And so unreliable instruments, you know, you stick the thermometer in one orifice and then it gets a different reading from another orifice. You know, which one is right, which one is wrong. User-unfriendly technologies, organizational frustrations, fascist nurse managers. These things keep showing up in these incidents. So these were the patterns they found when things went wrong. Then we asked, well, what about the other 12? What about the 12 in which nobody gets hurt or killed in the provision of healthcare? And they looked at us going, boo, that's a question that we've never asked ourselves. In fact, we didn't even know that that's irrelevant or a good question to ask. Why do these other 12 go well? Now, there's an interesting question. I bet you there's many execs in traditional hard-hat industries that haven't asked that question either, right? It's always, why did this go wrong? No, it's not the question, because much more goes right than goes wrong. Much more goes right than goes wrong. So they asked the hospital why they believed the other 12 went well. And they came with a hypothesis, sort of spontaneously. Well, it was probably because people don't do workarounds and they follow the guidelines and, you know, there's no fascist nurse managers running around. So these things don't happen. So they believe things went well because there was an absence of factors that usually made things go badly. Well, let's test this. And so we went into the organization for weeks, observed, learned, normal practice, right? Work is actually normally done. And we found the 12 that don't normally show up. You know what we came back with? What happens in the 12th that go right? Workarounds, shortcuts, procedure violations, errors, miscalculations, unreliable instruments, user-unfriendly technologies, organizational frustrations, supervisory obstacles, guidelines not followed. It doesn't make a damn difference. It's the same messy pot that people are working in, right? One in 13 goes wrong, the other 12 go right, but the same stuff is going down every day. And this is confronting. So you come back to your administrator, to your manager, to your to your board, and you go, oh my God, we didn't, we have nothing to govern this system on. You know, it's all, is it all chance? Is it all luck? Is it all patient physiology? So is it all luck? Are some patients just more brittle than others? No there actually is a difference. But the difference was not in the absence of these negatives. And if the difference wasn't in the absence of negatives, then what was it? Well, that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. And it's here where we'll take what's probably the biggest step in rethinking safety. 
A man has died after an industrial accident at a coal mine in the state's far north. Now we want to go to that incident in Queensland. The 44-year-old was working 700 metres underground when there was a collapse. This is Rethinking Safety, a show where the Queensland mining industry charts out the journey to a safer future. My name is Sean Brady, and I wrote the Brady Review into fatal accidents in the Queensland mining industry. In this podcast, we'll unpack the findings of the review with the goal to help the Queensland mining industry rethink its approach to safety. You'll hear from leaders in the industry, the regulator, the union, and leading academics and experts in the field of safety. As we ask the question, if it's not the absence of negatives, then what is it that causes accidents? This is episode five, why bad things don't happen. So to start this discussion, I want to bring you back to the 1980s when a number of academics from Berkeley started to investigate why some organisations didn't have a high number of incidents, even though they worked in complex and hazardous environments. Now, one of the organisations they looked at was flight operations on an aircraft carrier. Now, imagine an aircraft carrier. It's a naval vessel which essentially operates as an aircraft runway on a moving boat. Now, if you don't know much about the hazards on board one of these carriers, let me paraphrase a description from a senior officer in the Navy. He said you need to imagine that it's a busy day and you shrink San Francisco Airport to one short runway and one ramp and gate. Then you make planes take off and land at the same time. You rock the runway from side to side and make sure that everyone who leaves in the morning returns the same day. You push the equipment so close to the edge of the envelope that it's fragile. Then you turn off the radar to avoid detection, introduce strict controls on radios, fuel the aircraft in place with their engines running, put an enemy in the air and scatter live bombs around. And then you wet the whole thing down with salt water and oil and man it with 20-year-olds. That's the sort of hazard you have to contend with on an aircraft carrier. Now, this is a podcast about mining incidents. Why are we talking about aircraft carriers? Well, the Berkeley team spent a lot of time observing how this carrier operated, observing how people navigated its environment. And in the process, they learned why very few incidents occurred. They found that there were certain characteristics on board the carrier that made it safer. And I believe these are the very characteristics the Queensland mining industry should embrace going forward. And to explore these characteristics further... Let's go back to Sydney Decker and his hospital story and look at some of the findings from the 12 that went well. So let's start with the first finding. Instead of listening to the people who were in charge, the teams that were successful didn't kill their main people, were those who listened to people who knew. And that may well be somebody lower in the hierarchy. Now this is called deference to expertise. And while it appears reasonably self-explanatory, let's explore it a little further. Here's Peter Wilkinson from Noetic Solutions. You've heard from him many times in this podcast. And he's going to give you a real-world example of the importance of deference to expertise. Some of you may remember back in 1998, there was a significant explosion at the Longford gas treatment plant near Sale in Victoria. The plant takes gas and oils from offshore platforms and stabilises them at the plant Unfortunately, one day there was a process upset and 
hot oil was allowed into a very cold tank. The tank, because it was very cold and suddenly exposed to the thermal shock, cracked. The oil and gases came out and the vapour ignited and there was a serious explosion. Two people killed, others injured. So how does this relate to deference to expertise? To understand that, Peter goes back to before the incident, to when changes were made at the plant. The process engineers, the chemical engineers and others who really understood how the plant operated were moved from the plant back to head office in Melbourne. So they were still available and still able to offer good advice, but there was no chance of water cooler type conversations. So there were few opportunities for casual conversation between the engineers and the frontline workers. So a deference to expertise also can mean we need to make sure that expertise is available and not downgrade the expertise that's immediately on hand and available to the, those frontline workers who needed that expertise to help them run the plant effectively. And it is plausible that had the engineers been on site, that the incident could have been nipped in the bud, as it were, and not allowed to escalate to the point where there was an explosion and fire uh, and a, a fatality. So in the case of Longford, the key expertise not being on site and available may have played an important role in the incident. While deference to expertise sounds sensible, and it even sounds easy, there's a sting in the tail. And that sting is that for it to work well, you need to be willing to put aside hierarchies, because a strict hierarchical structure can prevent deference to expertise. So how do you get over this issue? How do you overcome the hierarchy problem? My name's Rob Jackson. When the report was released, I was the Vice President of Operations at Cannington Mine in northwest Queensland. I'm now the Vice President of Supply for South 32. I mean, we have an organisational chart just like every other mine in the country probably, um, but I wouldn't call us hierarchical. You know, role doesn't translate to expertise or leadership capability. So quite often the strongest and most technically capable people will have will be on the shop floor. So we recognise that we've probably all got an equal part to play in, in, in managing hazards and, and risk. We'll get everyone involved as, as a team to actually work out how we're going to get the best outcome. So as the leader of the operation, that actually might mean that I take a little bit of a back seat. I'm not saying you forget about title or position in the org chart, but you go looking for the expertise that you, you have within your organisation as opposed to you know, maybe relying on hierarchy to work out how to solve a problem. I asked Rob to give us an example of where this took place. One of the challenges I think that faces um, particularly underground hard rock operations, particularly those that might be a bit older, is you're generally moving into some of the more challenging parts of the ore body. They'll be, they'll be geometrically challenging, they'll be really odd shapes and sizes, and then geotechnically they'll be quite challenging as well. So mining into them, drilling them out, blasting them, extracting them safely and in a controlled manner can, can be quite a challenge. So where does deference to expertise come into this? If you've got a, a system set up whereby you've got, you know, the guy who's guy or girl who's on the jumbo, you know, drilling the development phase, he or she is providing feedback to the engineers who are then actually using information to try and develop a, a stoke plan. It's feeding that information back into the overarching plan and then having the mechanism whereby that plan can be modified and improved as new information comes to light. By doing that, we, we know that we get far better outcomes. So one of the keys to avoiding incidents is to defer to people with the right expertise, people who may be lower down the pecking order. 
and as sensible as deferring to the right expertise sounds, always remember that it pulls against human nature. It's sometimes very difficult to do because hierarchy can get in the way of deference working well. You see this particularly in, for example, midwifery. I've seen docs bumble around, but they're the doc, but they're like 20 years younger than the midwives running around who've done 1,500 births in the last year alone. For them, it's nothing, you know. So don't ask the one who's in charge or who is hierarchically sort of legitimated to be the one that you should be asking. No, ask the people who know. Teams that do that belong to the 12. So what would be an example of deference to expertise in the Queensland mining industry? Well, one example would be, let's say you're a senior manager and you have to decide when to shut down certain parts of the operation for maintenance. Now, you're going to need some expertise to make a good decision on when you need to do these shutdowns. And this expertise is obviously engineering expertise. Now, if you always listen to the production people, what you're actually doing is you're not deferring to expertise because you're allowing engineering decisions to be made based on production considerations, not engineering considerations. So if we take an extreme position here just to illustrate the point, if you always listen to your production people and have shutdowns only when it works for them, then you'll start breaking things and having incidents. So this is all about listening to the right expertise for the specific decision you're trying to make. So that's deference to expertise. Now let's go back to the 12 that went well. What else did they find? Teams that have the capacity to keep a discussion about risk alive, even when everything looks same, same and safe, right? Keep that discussion about risk alive. That capacity, that made a difference. So this is all about empowering people to recognize and speak up about the risks and hazards around them. And at this point, you may be thinking we've already covered this in our last episode when we spoke about reporting and the importance of reporting culture. But it's much more than this. And there's a phrase for it. It's often referred to as a preoccupation with failure or chronic unease. Here's Peter Wilkinson again. People ask what a preoccupation with failure means. Um, It's sometimes called chronic unease. Now, this causes problems for some people because a prevailing attitude and understandable view in business that we want to focus on what's good. We want to celebrate success. But in a sense here, preoccupation with failure seems unconventional, perhaps even weird, because we actually have to celebrate some failures. Now, we need to be a little careful here. It's easy to say to yourself, hang on, I thought we were talking about the 12 that went right. Why are we talking about a preoccupation with failure? Does that not suggest we should be examining the one that went wrong? And the point is we are talking about the 12 that went right. And one of the reasons they went right is because those involved had chronic unease. Those involved didn't assume things would go right. They were constantly thinking about how things could go wrong. As we all know, you can't manage things you don't know about. So preoccupation with failure is also about thinking through what can go wrong, how can that happen, and how can I get information about things that are going wrong so I can manage them. It's about ensuring that when things don't work, when people get things wrong, because we're all fallible, we know about them. I spoke to Stephen Smite from the CFMEU Mining Division about this very thing. I guess to take that context of chronic unease, when you're talking to a, to a car worker, is if, if you feel uneasy and you don't think it's right, then stop. But to enable people to do that, we've got to empower workers to understand actually through better hazard identification and hazard awareness and proper risk management application, we can provide them all the tools, but just giving them a tool and not explaining the logic behind it or, or what's the importance of it, 
won't deliver an outcome. And one of the aspects of chronic unease is the concept of a weak signal. What is a weak signal? It's a question I'm often asked, and it's not easy to answer. The reason it's not easy to answer is that it's very contextual, depends on the the situation you're in. So, for example, it's normal in well-organised companies to have a system often called authorization to operate when they have degraded controls or barriers. So where's the weak signal? So this can be a weak signal. If we've got one or two of those authorizations to operate because we have barriers or controls not working, but the number is going up and the date by which the authorization to operate has been extended again and again, technically it's a weak signal because nothing bad has happened but it's plain that the boundaries have been pushed. So that's a weak signal that tells you your organisation is drifting. And a weak signal can be even more subtle than that. So another weak signal could be, if you're a senior manager or leader, you're not getting any reports of bad things happening or of failures of systems or problems. And that in itself is a serious problem. Because if things aren't going wrong, you can be tempted into thinking everything must be going right. So if you're getting no reports, then you're not getting a strong enough signal to tell you where you have holes in your barriers or defences. So more bad things, paradoxically, is good, not bad. So we need this chronic unease in one sense to see around corners. I'm Bobby Foote. And I'm the Head of Health, Safety and Environment at BHP Mitsubishi Alliance. You'll remember Bobby from previous episodes, and now she's going to talk about chronic unease in BHP. Preoccupation with failure or chronic unease is something that we've been working on in BHP for a few years now, really trying to get people out of complacency and understanding how does my gut feel about this, what, what might go wrong, going and testing that through things like field leadership, When you're looking at a set of metrics, not just looking at, oh, it's all green, therefore everything's good, checking that it's not what we call a watermelon. And what's a watermelon? Watermelon is an an expression that we use a bit to, to look at where you've got metrics that might be getting greened. So people want the metric to be green and we're all striving towards those things being greened. But we also need to be really honest with ourselves about, is it really green? So Bobby talked about being really honest with ourselves. Also key in having chronic unease or a preoccupation with failure is providing people with psychological safety so that they're willing to speak up. At BMA, we've been doing a lot of work on psychological safety and that really unpacks safe to speak up into more areas. So how much do people feel safe to belong? How much do they feel they can contribute? How much do they feel they can learn? in that environment versus be tagged as having failed if they if they um, raise a question. And all of that then goes to how comfortable they feel to speak up. And how easy is it to create psychological safety? People bring all of their past experience um, background from out of work and in work with them to work. So how they've been treated in the past when they have raised a concern, um, when they've raised an idea, was it dismissed, was it listened to, was it followed through on, um, will affect their behaviour in that environment. So you need to really help them reset and really show, not just say, but show that it is safe to speak up here. So it is deliberate because you're, you're not starting from neutral. You actually need to overcome some of the past experiences those people will have had. So let's step back from psychological safety and return to chronic unease. Here's Rob Jackson from South32. 
We talk a lot about the concept of chronic unease. We, we went through a series of crew talks about the concept of chronic unease. Um, and, and you can see people getting it because it's, it's when things feel like they're going well that something normally bad will happen. So we wanted to sort of instill this level of thinking around, well, how can I look for that next thing that's going to go wrong? The other thing we started to talk a lot to our people around was the concept of desensitisation. And what is desensitisation? So it's that thing that you're really good at, that you do every day, probably many times a day, where you stop being able to see stuff. And it's not that you're a bad person or you're not good at your job. It's just the human brain. It's the way it works. It automates stuff and you can't see things anymore. And here, Rob talks about a key concept. Yeah, we talked to a lot of people about fresh eyes. So one of the things we did, and I, you know, we have our field time um, program that we put in place where leadership gets out into the field and engages and looks for stuff. We actually brought in other leaders with fresh eyes, recognising that they're probably going to see things that the other person can't see. And it was amazing some of the things that we picked up that had been there for, in some cases, decades, and we just hadn't seen them before. And although we spoke about hazard reporting in the last episode, Rob's going to talk about how it fits in with the concept of chronic unease. Yeah, we engage very regularly with our workforce and just made it really clear that there is a strong correlation between you know, hazard reporting and good safety outcomes, that we want everyone to go home safe and well. Um, so we created that connection. Our TRIF pretty much halved and our hazard reporting it more than doubled as well. So the stats, they're, they're quite significant. So how did they implement this? So we have a, a great um, piece of software we use, which um, is accessible by all people on site and they can get in and they can log their, their hazards. And not only can they log it and make sure that they get a level of comfort around what's happened from their hazard reporting. Rob's making a key point here. It isn't enough to just identify hazards and address them. You need to provide feedback about how you're addressing them. But as you heard earlier, a good reporting culture is only part of a preoccupation with failure. It's all about being aware that you are potentially at your most vulnerable when everything is going well. It's looking for the weak signals that will tell you where things are not quite working the way you think they are. And it's about actively looking for where your next failure is coming from. So maintaining a sense of chronic unease is something that we saw in the 12 that went well in the hospital. We found in our data that teams that do not take past success as a guarantee of safety with the current patient or the future patient is the team that is successful, that doesn't kill or maim their patient because patient presentations differ subtly, right? And so you can't make assumptions, oh, we did five bypasses today, you know, I just keep doing the same thing with this 200 pound and so it'll be the same outcome. No, it won't. So... A preoccupation with failure is accepting things will go wrong and accepting that you need to have an active role in identifying what these things are and fixing them before they cause incidents. So for the Queensland mining industry, this is all about building a strong reporting culture, both within organisations and across the industry. And it's about empowering people to speak up about where things could go wrong and rewarding them appropriately. It's about accepting that you can't design a system that will work perfectly all the time. And it's about ensuring that you get constant feedback in order to make corrections before incidents happen. Now, we've only focused on two of the findings from this hospital study, a difference to expertise and a preoccupation with failure. As you heard earlier, it wasn't the absence of negatives that avoided these incidents, but the presence of positives. And just to close out this hospital story, here's a flavour of some of the other positives they found. Or to put it in Sydney's terms, the presence of capacities. The capacity to innovate without waiting for inspections or audits. 
the ability to break down barriers between departments, right, and build relationships across. That sort of capacity showed up in the teams that were successful. The capacity to monitor is one of those. The capacity for assurance, the capacity for learning. And interestingly, again, consistent with Deming was pride of workmanship. Teams that are proud of the stuff they do, proud of the product they have. That sort of team will be one of the 12 rather than the one that goes wrong. The capacity to anticipate. Do you have risk competence rather than risk averseness in your organization, for example? The resource level, right? Capacities for people to do the work. Well, you need particular resources. Is the team large enough? And so it's these capacities that make the difference, not the absence of negative events. What are you doing as a board to actually uh, encourage and fund and resource, help resource the building of capacity in people? And I think there is a wonderful opportunity embracing these, uh, these new ways of thinking about safety as the presence of capacity rather than the absence of negative events. Now, at this point in the discussion, we could talk about many different things. We could talk about safety one and two and safety differently and learning and focusing on how work is done well as opposed to focusing on why things go badly. But I want to bring us back to the story about the aircraft carrier and the team at Berkeley who set out to understand why so few incidents were happening on board. So they spent a lot of time observing flight operations on the aircraft carrier. And they also examined a range of other organisations and they found that they all possessed five characteristics that made them different. Now, when these five characteristics are taken together, they produce something really interesting in an organization. Here's Peter Wilkinson again. Taken together, they are often regarded as the characteristics that are needed for an organization to be mindful. Now, this isn't mindfulness in a Buddhist sense. It's about being mindful of the things that can go wrong and how you can detect whether things are going wrong and what you need to do to avoid them. And organizations with these five characteristics are called high reliability organizations, or HROs. An oft quoted one is air traffic control. The Federal Aviation Authority in the US handles an enormous number of flights every day without conflict, without mid-air crashes and they are cited as being very flexible organisations that enable this really dynamic environment to succeed. And you'll notice the term high reliability organisation doesn't actually include the word safety. Now HRO uh, isn't specifically about um, safety. HRO is focused on reliability of their operations. Uh, Put another way, it's about predictability. It's about doing things in a way that are controlled from start to finish. And as a result, one of the byproducts, if you do all those processes right in a hazardous environment, one of the byproducts is safety. But paradoxically, we deliver safety, but we don't have to mention safety in, in the title of the process we use to get there. So I believe HRO principles are the way forward for the Queensland mining industry because the five characteristics of HROs address many of the deficiencies identified in the industry. So what are the five characteristics that are common to HROs? Well, we've just spent quite a bit of time talking about two of them, deference to expertise and a preoccupation with failure. And we'll explore the remaining three characteristics in our next and final episode, pulling it all together to help you rethink safety and chart out the path to a safer future. In our final episode, we'll add to the concepts of deference to expertise and a preoccupation with failure. We'll explore a sensitivity to operations, a commitment to resilience, and a reluctance to simplify. 
and you'll hear from companies actually implementing some of these characteristics right now. And here's Rob Jackson with the final word. The, the whole concept of HROs um, I find fascinating because up until maybe 12 months ago, I, I don't know if I'd even heard that terminology. But if I look at what we were doing, there was a high level of alignment between what we were trying to do and, and that came about because of the, you know, our, I guess the level of our intuition and the collective efforts within South 32 and Cannington itself. And it's, there's an extremely high level of alignment between the principles that we were putting in place and those of a, of a HRO. So now I've got a better sense of the whole concept of HRO. I stand back and go, yeah, I, I get it. You've been listening to Rethinking Safety a show where the Queensland mining industry charts out the journey to a safer future. Our objective for this podcast is to reinvigorate the conversation about safety in mining. This podcast was written and produced by Brady Hayward in partnership with Waveland Creative. Archival audio provided by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation Library Sales and additional audio by Colin Tyrus. I'm Sean Brady and I'll speak to you on our next episode. <laughs>